0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. At the moment, I'm thinking of that stained song, you know, the song that says, It's been a while since I said I'm sorry, that song, which I love. And, it, and that's how I feel right now. It's been a while since I've done this podcast, and, I, and I've got to say I'm sorry. For the 12 people who listen to this podcast, it's been a long time. I have about 10 lists of points in front of me, and this is going to be scattershot. There's go- not going to be any rhyme or reason to today. I decided to do this podcast about 30 seconds ago. I told my wife I'm about to do to do a recording. I think that will have no effect. She's in the other room. She's about to leave. She has a full plate today. My guess is within 10 minutes, she will be in this room. And she the sound of it will sound like someone hitting a dinner plate with a femur bone. That's That is the extent of noise that we are about to encounter with her, unless she sneaks out the side door, which is a possibility. So Let me talk a little bit about this podcast. Uh, Like I said, I normally have one list of points that I go through. The problem is I've been keeping points for weeks now, and I haven't done a podcast. So this is going to be all over the place. I honestly don't know what I'm going to talk about, but I've got way too many points. And I typically start these podcasts with, who is the podcast for? Right, last, last time I did a podcast, it was the guy who spent his stimulus check on a spoiler for his 83 Honda Civic. Right, That guy, I want him on this podcast, whoever he is. This week, I'm going to tell you that this podcast is for anyone out there who is brave enough to stick your arm and hand into that clear fake barrel filled with ginormous pickles at the convenience store. If you walk into the convenience store and you see that giant fake barrel on top of the counter, and it's always on top of the counter. They never make it easy. It's never down low. It's at eye level, and it's terrifying because it is filled with the most vile-looking scene you have ever seen, which is a bathwater, dirty bathwater-filled barrel filled with enormous floating pickles, right? It's disgusting and terrifying. I can't make eye contact with it. Otherwise, I have to sit in the car in a shame spiral. But there are those of you who Walk into a convenience store, and without thinking twice, reach your arm up and over the lip of that barrel, and then and then basically dip your hand in that refuse until you found the shape and feel of the pickle that you want. You whip it out of the barrel, stick it in some other plastic container, and then take it outside to consume it. If that's the kind of person you are, then this podcast is 100% for you. All right. Let's move on to the hero of the week, which is the second thing that I always put out. The hero of the week. And this week we have, we have three, but two are combined. The first is f- current five- or six-time reigning Formula One driving champion Lewis Hamilton, who is a driver out of the UK who just equaled Michael Schumacher's Formula One win record, which was a record that no one thought would ever be caught. And Hamilton is going to blow past it. He drives for a Mercedes. Uh, I drive a Dodge, so a Dodge van, so he and I are basically one in the same, and uh, he's going to blow past this record, and the dude is just, like, unstoppable. It's everyone, it's Lewis Hamilton and then everyone else, so congrats to him for doing that. The second hero of the week is our brothers, Frank and John Craighead, and if you don't know Frank and John Craighead, I'm not surprised, but I can almost certainly guarantee you know their life's work, which is the radio collar for animals. So when they want to study an animal and they're able to dart an animal and put a radio collar on it, that originated with the, the Craighead brothers, who I believe were out of like Idaho or Montana, somewhere up, somewhere up north. Anyway, that was quite a, quite a contribution to science. And I know that those are, there are people that are in love with the radio collar and others that, that aren't. But uh, we sure have learned a lot about our, our furry friends uh, from those radio collars. And the last hero of the week, and I'm throwing this in because it happened to me yesterday. And I don't know his name, but you know him. You might not know exactly him, but you know somebody like him. So yesterday, I'm driving into Santa Fe, and I'm in my Dodge van, right, which is a Dodge 1500 ProMaster. If you're looking for a fast or nimble vehicle, you're going to have to keep looking because it's not the Dodge ProMaster. Imagine a giant metal box on tiny wheels, and that's the Dodge ProMaster. So I pull up at a stoplight, and I'm in the middle lane. So I got a lane on the left and a lane on the right, and in the left is some stooge in some nameless, brandless car that looks like everything. It could be a Camry. And I love the Camry, but you know what the, you know what I mean. The Camry means I don't make decisions about my life. Life dictates the decisions to me. And there's a lot of us. I've driven Camrys. My family's driven Camrys. But I'm not proud of it. And on the right, the lane is empty, at least for the moment. And then, and let me just explain something about New Mexico. Macho is a big business here bigger than any state I've ever lived in, including Texas, right? Texas brags all the time, but they're not that macho. New Mexicans are macho, right? And this transcends race, creed, color, religion, everybody here. There's like a macho element to our society. It is not uncommon to watch a 50-year-old Caucasian man drag racing through downtown Santa Fe at 6 a.m. on a Tuesday, right? That just makes sense here. It happens all the time. So I pull up at the light, and up next to me pulls a time capsule of 1994. It is some sort of Firebird Trans Am, kind of during the time that those cars were not cool anymore. Like it was past Burt Reynolds' prime with Smoking the Bandit. And before, like now, you had to pay $300,000 to get a Trans Am or Firebird. This was sort of in that middle ground where they, they couldn't decide on a body style or engine type. And like they were fading in popularity. But this guy had one. And he had spent clearly every single penny he'd ever made on this car. It was lowered. It had a custom hood scoop, enormous hood scoop on it. But here's the best part. You know, in drag racing, they, they run tires that are all solid rubber. And when they practice and they throw bleach on the track and then they spin the tires to get them hot, the tire shrinks and it gets super tall and skinny. And then they let off the gas and it goes back to being fat again. This guy had drag racing tires on his street car. They were six inches of solid rubber that had enormous white lettering on the side that would normally say like Firestone, but I think these had his girlfriend's name on them. And I just happened to look over in his direction. That's all I did. Now, I'm five feet higher than he is because he's lowered and I'm in a van. Now, none of this happened. None of this dialogue happened. But this is what I envisioned happened. Bear with me. I look over innocently, and he sees me looking, and that's all it took. It was like a light switch, and he's looking at me with this look like, you want to go, buddy? Huh? You want to go? And I was like, what do you mean? I went before I left the house. I don't have to go. And then the light, like a drag racing, we get the left turn arrow, and it's like, and now he's power braking. He's literally power braking next to me. So the car is screaming as the tires are starting to spin, It's deafening, deafening roar from this car next door. And I'm in a Dodge ProMaster. Like, what am I going to do? He doesn't care. He's like, I'm taking you out. I'm taking you down. And I'm going to crush everything that makes you human. And then the light goes from red to green. And it was on like Donkey Kong. I took off at normal speed. He, on the other hand, he put his foot through the floorboard with the accelerator. And I kid you not. In a 45 zone, he was doing 100 miles an hour at least. Um, And he smoked the Stooge in the Camry, too. That chump didn't even know we were racing. But whoever the guy is in that car, he's my hero of this week. He supersedes Lewis Hamilton because I've never raced Lewis Hamilton. And technically, I didn't race this guy, but he was racing. And I was the one he was racing against. So, man, whoever you are, definitely I'm getting a tattoo of you on my neck later this week. Okay, question of the week is, how awful are Friday and Saturday nights at the Mike Pence house? How awful? So this week uh, and last week and the week before has been absolutely unparalleled in American history in terms of what is happening with our administration and what's coming out of the administration. Mike Pence, during the debate with Kamala Harris, he is just the most incredible walking contradiction I've ever seen because Mike Pence holds his Christianity on his sleeve with a giant patch with flashing lights all day, every day, right? He's a Christian militant and is what, how I would describe him. So he leads his life by this, but yet at the same time, he gets up on national television at a debate and just lies for whatever, an hour and a half, just fabricates lies and parrots whatever Trump has told him to say. That's a pretty interesting uh, dichotomy that you have to walk as a human being. And I thought to myself, man, and, and I've heard stories about the dialogue that happened on the night in 2016 when they won the election, and Pence's wife said something to him along the lines of, great, Mike, you got what you wanted and walked out of the room. And I just thought to myself, you know, Saturday night at the Pence house is going to be Parcheesi and Hymns, right? That's it. That's as far as you can go. No one's doing vodka poppers in the kitchen. No, no one has a six foot bong in the living room and passing it around while they're watching, like, you know, smoking the band at seven. That's not happening. It's Parcheesian hymns. And I was like, oh, no wonder he's, he's, he's adrift, right? So hopefully the election will put them out of their misery. They will be a dark chapter in our, in our history of America. They will be a warning sign. Imagine a bumper car, right? So remember when I was a kid, There was nothing I loved more than bumper cars, right? Because I had a strategy. I didn't get in the bumper car ring and just go, "Gee, I'm going to go around in the center, and I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to just bang into a couple of people." And remember, in the center of the bumper car track, everyone got stuck together in like a giant Pangea of of bumper cars. The smart people hugged the outside, and like Lewis Hamilton, built built an just insane amount of speed around the outside, and. Here's the trick with bumper cards. If you ever find yourself in this position, it's a little bit like dodgeball. So you get to the outside as fast as you can, right? And then you, f- you peg the thing, and you start using the, 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 the out, outer side of the track where there isn't anyone, and you do these giant loops, right? And if anyone comes near you, make a hand signal as if something is wrong. And they will take pity. 99% of the time they take pity, and they go, oh, something's wrong, and they go to somebody else. But in what you're doing is you're building up speed to massacre some unsuspecting fool in the middle of the track. That's the kind of strategy that I'm after. And I think as a society, we are about to bounce off the bumpers of the Trump-Pence administration. Now, I still think they have a really good chance of winning. And with all, and I can't believe I get to say this. It's not that I have to say it. It's that I get to say it. With all of the literal, literally illegal activity that is coming from the republican side of you know greg abbott in texas eliminating places where people can drop mail in ballots except for one per county and then having a federal judge say what are you doing that's illegal no and then an, an, an appeals panel overturning that federal judge and allowing him to do that and no one says not anyone in the republican world says anything then putting fake ballot boxes out so that they can take those ballots because they know the early voting is being dominated by the Republicans, I mean, by the Democrats and by people who are just so pissed off at what's happening. But it's it's remarkable. So I think we're about to bounce off the bumper and hopefully we bounce back in. Now, we might as well get the politics out of the way now because there's a lot to talk about, but I'm going to condense it to a couple of points. The first one is, Coronavirus 39, stable genius zero. To watch this buffoon handle this or mishandle the virus, and today he's coming out and said it's over, and there's 40 million people who are dumb enough to go along with it, and the QAnon people and all those folks, which is another mystifying subject that we could talk about all day. It's just incredible. Now, I've said this 100 times on this podcast. I said in 2016, if we're dumb enough to elect him, we deserve everything that happens because Let's think about this for a minute. Prior to 2016, and prior to the nomination, what did I know about Donald Trump? Now, I don't watch TV, so I've never seen a single episode of any of the TV shows that he's on. I never saw any of the beauty pageants in Russia or here or wherever that he was involved in. I just don't care about beauty pageants. Uh, I just don't. And so I never watched any of that stuff, and I never saw any of his television shows. I knew Donald Trump through the finance world and the and the sort of New York socialite world. Not that I was a part of it, but he was a public figure. He was a very easy person to follow because he had a public record. He's a a public personality. So we know this prior to 2016. Lied about his wealth. Lied about his father, where he was born. Lied about the money given to him by his father. Lied about his taxes. Lied about his military service. Lied about adultery. Lied about his affairs, lied about every single thing to do with his real estate empire, lied about golfing. He basically, lied, for 50 years, he lied as if like you and I breathe. That was the best description by someone who knew him. I think it was the guy who co-authored his book, said, Trump lies like you and I breathe. And so for 50 years, we had a public track record of who he was. So in 2016, I said, look, if we're dumb enough to elect this clown— who is a pathological liar and a career white-collar criminal, we deserve every single thing that happens to us, and I feel 100% the same today. So the fact that Corona's spiraling out of control and he's on stage saying it's over, we deserve it. We elected him. The fact that he's, he's trying to sell off public lands, we deserve it. We elected him. The fact that he is stoking white nationalism and telling the Proud Boys to stand by on national television and not a single Republican comes out and condemns it, we deserve it because we elected him. And I think that is—he uh, has a damn good chance of winning again, whether or not they—they they basically uh, uh, illegitimize the election and, and hide votes and, you know, justice bars on his—you uh, know—the attorney general bars on his side, the appellate courts on his side, and he's about to stack the Supreme Court with another stooge, and that's you know, uh, whatever her name is, Comey Barrett, she's going to be, she's a stooge, she will not answer any direct questions. Uh, you kind of have an idea of where this is going, right? its I mean, how quickly did he have her name on the tip of his tongue when, when Ginsburg went down? So you kind of knew where this was headed. We knew this for four years. Um, sadly, Ginsburg didn't last long enough for us to be able to p- potentially get rid of these clowns and then get back to a semblance of normalcy. Here's the other thing, just quickly. And this is the last thing I'll say about politics. The Republicans had a real chance here. The Republicans had a chance to consolidate power for decades, and they blew it. Eighteen months ago, the Republicans could have said, look, this clown has done a million things wrong. He is a scourge of a human being. He's vile, and he does not represent the ideals of our party. And here is someone who does. Here's a 50-year-old moderate Republican who can work with both sides of the aisle He's our person, or she's our person. We can no longer stand by Donald Trump. Had they done that, Trump would, have, of course, thrown a, a hissy fit. But had they done that, they would have consolidated power for decades. The problem is they didn't, and now they're absolutely doomed in the long run. The Republican Party is doomed because the McConnells and Grams and Ryan's and Jordans and Nunes and all these clowns that have enabled Trump to do what they're doing are all going to go down. And the party has no one. What the Republican Party has signaled is we are incredibly weak. We are incredibly disorganized. We let a guy who never identified with our party once in his entire life come in and take us over and, and force us to go against everything we've ever stood for as a party. The public is not going to forget that for a long time. The, the flip side of this is the Democrats are, are in trouble, too because Trump has destroyed so much in four years. And by the way, the New York Times piece from a couple of days ago that investigated the depth at which Trump has given basically pay for play advantages to people that have given him money. That is incredible and how quickly he did that. And again, he, he, he had 50 years of practice before he got in office. There's no possible way that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, if they win, can fix that stuff. There's just no way. And 40 million people in America are going to, the day, let's say that Biden and Harris win, that night, those 40 million people are going to blame them for every single thing that Trump has done. That's what happened. Remember when, when Bush was leaving office and Obama came in, the Republicans blamed Obama for the financial collapse. And 40 million people said, yep, I guess that's true, um, you know, Bush... Bush didn't do it, you know. wasn't on his watch, and I'm not blaming President Bush for the entire financial collapse, but he was the president when it went down. Obama was the incoming, and yet I have family members who have absolutely no recollection of that. They've just erased the facts from their memory, and they've just implanted whatever it is that makes them feel good about the scenario. So we are hosed. Our system is hosed. I haven't quite seen cracks like this in our society in quite some time. I mean, let me, just, let me just say this, and I'll move on to another more upbeat topic like um, my wife with a femur bone. We had an attempted kidnapping of a U.S. governor, and not a single Republican spoke out against it. Think about that. We had an attempted kidnapping of a governor by a militia group, and no one spoke out that is the one of the most vile and let's face it i'm an, i'm about to use a word that i probably shouldn't use on the podcast and it's a word that offends a lot of people but i think it's really fitting in this regard the republicans are a bunch of pussies they are they are the biggest group of pussies i've ever seen in my political life as a collective because look at what's happened in the last week and then the week before and the week before that and there's all these opportunities to speak out the the, the president goes on national television and tells a white nationalist group to stand by and no one says anything. That's remarkable. So for me personally, I always looked at the parties as two really flawed, horrible programs. And I I was always like lesser of two evils when it came to voting. And I never had a candidate in my life that I looked at and said, I truly believe in this person because the system is so destroyed. It doesn't really matter who gets in there. It's going to get, they're going to have a hard time. But the Republicans have for the first time ever forced me into a straight ticket vote for the Democrats. And I will, and I, I can say this now, and maybe I'll change it. Something weird happens. I can never vote for a Republican again after what they've allowed and enabled. And I think enable is the key word. All of these people, McConnell, Graham, Jordan, Nunes, um, Grassley, uh, uh, the, the, the Senator in Maine, this Collins in Alaska, they are going to wear the scarlet letter for the rest of their life, which is E for enable. They're enabling this guy to destroy everything in his path and not doing a single thing about it. And here's the the last, okay, truly the last thing. It is kind of amazing to think if, if Trump loses, what happens in the state of New York? I mean, they're going to come after him, all guns blazing, man. They are going to go after his taxes and his financials. People talk about him going to jail. He's a rich white guy. Rich white guys tend not to go to jail unless, the, unless you've made some colossal mistake in your, your guarding the Bernie Madoffs of the world, you know, who, who just basically got, you know, he just didn't do a, a good enough job of protecting himself in the middle of this massive crime. Trump has 50 years of practice and lawyers up. And like when a jet goes in to bomb a target and then peels off and shoots out the flares to, to attract the surface to air missiles, Trump does that with lawsuits. And so I can't imagine the lawsuits ending before he just ages out. I mean, I, I don't think he'll go to jail. Okay, then, let's move on. Uh, qu- quick point here. Uh, Christopher Nolan. This is my first point of the day, believe it or not. I'm 21 minutes in and I'm just getting to the first point. Christopher Nolan, the director. Uh, Very interesting conversation I had about him with someone in Hollywood a couple of years ago before I left California, someone who's very, very in tune with the motion picture world, who's a very respected guy, who has an honorary position with like the Director's Guild and all these things. And we were talking about Nolan and the fact that Nolan shoots 70mm and 35mm film, right? Which is, and going back 20 years in Hollywood, Hollywood went through the same weird, digital transition that the still photography industry did, which is if you, and if you lived through it, you know what I'm talking about, was when digital technology got good enough to be usable, there was this whole wave of people inside the industry that were forcing people to digital as fast as possible. Some had legitimate reasons and some didn't, but everyone said, oh my God, this is new. This is, this has to be better. Film is dead. Everybody has to use digital. And they were wrong in so many different ways, and it was so obvious. And as the industry imploded, they were still like clinging to the lifeboat, even though the lifeboat was already underwater. And the cinema world went through the same thing, whereas when the Flex and all these digital systems came out, everyone was like, oh, this must be better. We're going to have to use this. And Nolan just said, I'm shooting film. And the reason it works is that Nolan is really good and my buddy who's in the industry said to me they go he does what he what he wants because he has the goods he proves it right no one says to him hey your work's not that great so we want you to use this other system your system is dictated to you when you're not there when you're not very good because the other people can look at you and tell you what to do and the really good still photographers and the really good motion people do what they do because it's the look that they need and the way that they want to work and nobody messes with them Helmut Newton's wife got up in L.A. and told a great story about Helmut Newton and, and how once, once magazine editors figured out that he was better than they were, they just left him alone. She said that, you know, they used to tell him what to shoot, and then he would start slipping his own images in. And then at one point, they just looked around and said, his images are way better than what we're asking for, so we should just leave him alone. And I think that's a good point. If you're a photographer, filmmaker, that's a really good point, point to do. Uh, I'll, I'll equate it to, like, there's a lot of content on YouTube that's quote-unquote cinematic, and everyone's like, oh, how to get cinematic drone footage or cinematic you know, motion out of your Sony zv one The problem is, it's just it's kind of eye candy, and once you've seen it once or twice, your brain goes, yep, already seen that. Where's the story? Where's the script? And that's what really separates good filmmaking to me is where you have a great script and you have a good story, and the technique doesn't get in the way of what you're actually trying to get across. And I think YouTube is primarily about technique and not very much about story. Now, there are great brands and organizations and filmmakers putting completed stories on there, that's for sure. But a lot of what you see in like super hip, popular, multi-million follower YouTube filmmakers is just cinematic and equipment stuff that's really boring. And I'll give you another example of this. My wife, who used to work for Canon, was in, worked in Hollywood for a long time. And after she'd been there a few years, she ended up on all these panels that would judge contests. So we would get films in the mail. And you'd get, you know, a ton of films. And we would have to sit down and watch them. And then she would have to, like, you know, give her opinion or vote on them, which was good. And when the Canon 5D came out, we were suddenly bombarded by dozens and dozens of films that were based on the fact that you could shoot a shallow depth of field in a Canon 5D and make it cinematic. The problem was the stories were horrible. The scripts were horrible. The acting was horrible. Or if they were documentaries, it just wasn't a good subject matter. It was 100% based on the fact that you had this look. And we could not get through them. We would identify them within 30 seconds of the film starting, and we'd say to ourselves, oh, no, here's another one. And we'd eject it and try to find something that had an actual script and story. So there's a lesson to be learned here for all of us that— you can't get away from the basics, and if you're good, you should be left alone to do whatever it is you do, regardless of what clients are telling you. Okay, let's move on here. Uh, I should update you on my, uh, my equipment situation, because I know you geeks out there are going to want to know this, and I've mentioned this on my YouTube channel, my exploding YouTube channel, by the way. I'm a YouTube darling now, if you didn't know. So I'm adding at least three pieces of equipment to my life right now. And there's a very specific reasons for that. I've been shooting Fuji digital cameras now for years. Uh, I'm still using Fuji X-T2s, which is a great camera. It's primarily a great camera for stills. Video is a little bit lacking in some ways. The autofocus is not the best. Uh, And there's some limitations on the video side. It's fine for what I'm doing. I'm not a great filmmaker. I'm making these silly little YouTube things, so they work. But I am going to upgrade to the X-T4. I'm keeping all my X-T2 bodies because my wife is now using them. She worked for Canon forever and she cannot stand the Canon stuff anymore because the Fuji stuff is so much smaller and lighter. And she's actually a better photographer with the Fuji stuff. It's like a night and day difference between her work with a Canon and a Fuji. It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, but it was immediate. It happened last year in Albania when we went and I loaned her a Fuji camera and one lens and I took the second body and the other lens and I did a film called Going Solo with the 50 millimeter. that's on my YouTube channel. That's been very popular, by the way. And I edited her work at the end of that trip and with Canon, because the size of the system and the giant bulkiness of that gear, her, she always had a lot of out-of-focus imagery. And it was just not framed well, those zoom lenses and everything, and she just never adapted to that Canon system very well at all, even though she worked for them for a long time. And I never adapted to it either. I have a full Canon system, and I haven't used it in years because I don't make good work with it, and I I don't precisely know why. I thought for years it was tied to the fact that it was a digital system, and I was not in love with digital, but it's not, because the second I got a Fuji camera in my hand, I started to make good work with a digital camera, and my wife is the same. So... We're upgrading to an X-T4 because motion is now a much bigger part of my life than it was a few months ago. Uh, My job at Blurb has changed again, and I will use that word pivot once more because it's accurate. And so the X-T2s, I have one that has a Speedmaster 50 on it that's never going to come off. I love that combination for stills. It's wonderful. It's the camera I carry every day, and it still works fine for stills. The second X-T2 has a booster on it and my long, my 50 to 140 with a 2X converter for birding and for a project I'm working on in Death Valley, that's not going anywhere. And so I'm getting the X-T4 because one, it has much better autofocus. It has the focus tracking, the eye focus tracking, and it's also much better for video. And so it's stabilized and I'm getting a 16 to 80 lens that's also stabilized. And apparently the combination of the two is really solid because it's nice to have something handheld. And so that's, that's on the way. And I know there's going to be an X-T5 probably around the corner. And you know what? That's just the way it is now. Everything in our lives is disposable. And, you know, they're always trying to upsell. And I'm sure the X-T5 will be better. And maybe they'll even put a headphone jack in it. Who knows? I mean, something crazy like that could happen without having to buy the booster. I also have a drone. I bought the Mavic Mini drone. I've flown it one time. It was an absolute blast. It's 249 ounces. It's tiny. fits in the palm of my hand. shoots 2.7K, which is way more than I need. And it is a blast. It's just, I bought it more than anything else for the idea of learning a new skill. I'd flown one drone before with Jerry Cavassier here in Santa Fe. He's a drone operator. And it was fun, but it was his drone. I didn't know what I was doing. I was a little nervous. You know, it's his. I don't want to crash it, whatever. And so I bought this thing. It was 500 bucks. And I have to say, DJI their packaging is fantastic and their website is fantastic. They are a slick system, man. When you're talking about equipment, that I was very impressed by the packaging and the instructional tutorials, how their app works and the quick in and out of the app to find tutorials that are wonderful and they're just simple and done. The drone is a blast. It's, I, I call it the Mosquito. It's really small, um, not so good in the high wind. It's very windy today here in New Mexico. I would never think about flying the drone right now. Uh, I cannot wait to sort of add this in and really just deluge all of you with needless drone footage, right? We all know this. You, you know it well, and I'm going to add to that matrix, and uh, you're probably going to hate me for it in the long run. Okay, update. AG-23, um, man, it's a good update. I, As of yesterday afternoon, I sent five contributors for the second issue to the designer in Australia, Zoe Sadikirski. Zoe wrote back and said, oh my God, I can't believe you pulled this off in the middle of COVID. Uh, By the way, I have a friend that I told you about that has a story that might play along well with these other five. And do you wanna see it? And I wrote back and said, yes. So potentially we will have six people in the second issue. They will each receive a collaboration stipend. So we are paying. We have not awarded our first micro grant yet. I have an idea of what I would love to do with that micro grant. I just do not have permission as of yet. And I don't mean permission from Rick from beyond. Rick from beyond is like your best friend a thousand times over because he's so gung-ho and he's so open-minded to all this stuff. My idea to give the micro grant is for a small group of people that I do not have a direct relationship with and I cannot have a direct relationship with. But I think it would be interesting to give them a small uh, collaboration grant and see what they could come up with, because I think it would be a very cool addition to the second issue. I have uh, about six or seven people already lined up for issue three, one of whom I reached out to this morning. She's someone I used to work with at Blurb, who is a designer, and I love her work, and she did a book right before she left Blurb that I have a copy of that I absolutely think is fantastic, and it's a book about shape. It's a book about shapes in the design world. And it's colorful and strong and funny and simple, and I would love it in there. There is a second designer out of California that I have my sights on, who is somebody I've known for quite some time now, who is one of the best book publication designers I've met. And he reached out and said, how do I get in the next issue? Uh, There are two other people in San Francisco who will remain nameless. Someone, one of whom might be listening to this podcast. I have had uh, his work on my mind for this zine for a long, long time. And, um, and I think hopefully that'll work out. And then I've got a, a, a slew of other people. There's a photographer out of Miami that submitted that I has, has a really good project. Um, Melanie McWhorter, who writes about photography books here in town and is a photo consultant and a book consultant. She was in issue one. She asked about being in the next issue. So I would love to have her back with another feature on photography books. And I think the third issue will be less about particular stories and more about visual expression right? So it'll be, it'll be interesting. And I'm hoping to get the system down. It's tricky. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and people's lives are different and changing and the demands are different. And there's a lot, there's a thin line margin of error in our lives right now. And so I reach out for stuff and I get it when people are like, yes, I want to do this, but I can't really hundred percent focus on this right now. So it took a long time to gather the work for the second issue, but we have five stories that I think, and the theme is transition. There's five stories about transition. Some are about personal transition. One is about agricultural transition. One is about a country in transition. One is about a group of young women in transition. Uh, And one is about a transition from one life as a photographer into another. And so it'll be fun. And Zoe, the designer, is such a dream to work with and such a cool person Um, that we, I hand over that content. I'm hoping to have one initial conversation with her to write, to walk through some details and sort of things that I envision. And then you just get out of the way because she's so much better than any of us when it comes to design that you just know what's going to come back is your, your jaw is going to drop and go, God, this looks really good. So that's the AG 23 update. My wife is going out tonight to a small gathering here in town where there's four or five other creatives coming, and she's bringing a copy and a T-shirt and a sticker and a slipcase for all of those folks. Um, The person who's hosting the gathering already has one and reached out and said, I would love to know more about this, like how are you guys doing this, et cetera. Uh, I'm working with the Blurb Large Order Services folks to work on the second issue and make sure that our printing is good, et cetera, et cetera. Everything is more complex now because of COVID, obviously. And it's pretty clear now that COVID ain't going anywhere anytime soon. So we've got to be patient and keep working um, as best we can on on this stuff, right? I mean, again, there are days when I think to myself, how would my life be if I didn't have to do AG23? Because that would free up a tremendous amount of time. But then the other part of me is like, it's so worth it because the response to it has been way better than I even thought it would be. And it has come quicker than I thought it would be. And so it's been really good. And it feels, and this sounds cheesy, and it probably sounds like I'm totally giving you a line. It feels really good to promote other people's work because I don't care about my own work. I don't care if you watch my YouTube films. Don't care if you listen to this podcast. Don't care if you look at my photography. I never have. I'm an oddball. I've been that way from day one, and I will probably always be that way. But it's pretty fun to me when someone reaches out and I can sit there and explain to them your project in detail and why we think it was important and why they might want to take a look at it. It's pretty fun. It's fun to not have a stake in the game, you know, to help promote other people. It's kind of fun. I should have been doing this a long time ago. Okay, let me give you uh, an update uh, on the van, right? I don't know what point this is. Let's let's call it 5.5. I'm at 35 minutes. We got a long time to go, people. I got 100 points here. Let me just say this about the van. And I'll give you a recap. Dodge Promaster 1500, the most basic van you can get. It's a metal box. The interior of the van, kitted out from Wayfarer out of Colorado Springs. Awesome people. Awesome setup. Modular. Installs in three hours. Completely movable, tweakable, fixable. Well, guess what? The folks at Wayfarer, in the midst of a pandemic have been very busy busy beavers if you will and they created a couple of new pieces of internal componentry that significantly changed the structure of the inside of the van so Amy and I saw them and we were like we're coming up drove up to Colorado Springs safely of course kept our distance everyone wore masks dropped the van off. They installed these pieces and it is badass, right? It doesn't change the performance of the van, but the inside of the van now has a storage mechanism, two of them, one in the front with a spice rack and one in the back with a wheelie box that has two access points that basically takes about a third of the back of the van under the sleeping platform and turns it into a multi-purpose storage area, which is fantastic. Instead of like loose bags, loose uh, propane containers and backpacks and everything, everything fits into this storage. And then it has the entire top length of the thing where you could probably sleep a third person, non-claustrophobic person, but you could easily sleep a third person under there. And I'm like, God, this is great. And it's, it's affordable. And it literally, it, it installed in three minutes and you're like, Oh my God, I just changed the inside of the van. So we had that done. We have been using the van a ton. We've done probably four or five trips. We're going to go another one this weekend. I'm going to do a second installment of my everyday expedition films. I'm going to at least start it on a birding trip up to the conscious burn area near Los Alamos. I was up there a few months ago. We camped overnight, and the birds in the conscious burn area were absolutely remarkable. And again, I I'm like an idiot birder. I don't even know what I'm looking at. I don't know how, where to look. I don't know I see something and I go that looks cool and then it's gone and I can't identify it. So I'm like an unskilled birder, but I've been reading a lot about birds. A lot of books, a lot of data, and they are absolutely fascinating and it's one of those things that we've all learned to not pay attention to, right? We've been around birds our whole life. Whatever. And then you start digging into what's there and what they're doing and how they're communicating. And it's like this whole hidden world that I knew nothing about. So I'm going to do this birding film, and I'm going to drone the living shit out of it, by the way, just so you know. And maybe the drone will fight a raptor, and I'll have it all in 2.7K 2, 2. as the drone crashes to earth in a fireball of blood and feathers. I don't know, maybe. Now, the great birding areas are about five, five hours south of here. There's closer. There's some about two and a half, three hours south. I just don't have time to go because I'm giving another talk on Saturday morning. I've given basically a talk a week for weeks and weeks and weeks now. At least I've done workshops and talks online. Last uh, Earlier this week, I spoke to the de Kooning Institute, a class uh, at the de Kooning Institute in Rotterdam. They were amazing. Um, God, I love the Netherlands. It's such a great place. And uh, so I've got to give a talk on Saturday morning, and then we're going to jump in the van and head out there. The van, I kick myself. Why on earth I did not have I did not have a van 30 years ago. I do not know. It is life-changing. And there are, so <laughs> I was at the library yesterday pirating their Wi-Fi, which I do. Santa Fe Library has great Wi-Fi. So I'm down there and I don't have Wi-Fi at the house. And I just found out that my two options here suck. They suck with capital letters. And so I'm not gonna get Wi-Fi. I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing and see what happens. I'm gonna get a 5G phone and see if that works better. And I don't know, we'll see. So I'm down there trying to upload a stellar YouTube film. And the door of the van is open. And all I do for an hour and a half is talk to people walking by about the van because they look in and they see it and they go, oh my God, what is that? Did you build that? How did you do it? Whatever. And then I'm like, no, 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 it's Wayfair. I need like a, a, a little a lectern out front with a microphone so that I can just broadcast to the community instead of having to talk to individuals because people are seeing it. The van world right now is exploding. As we all know, you can't even get a van outfitter to work on your van unless you're doing a full build. That's kind of a cool thing, and it's kind of terrifying at the same time. I hope when COVID goes away, it levels off because, you know, I don't want too many people out in these places. It just, it's just not sustainable. But the van, if you're thinking about it, is great, and you don't have to be van life people. You don't have to live in your van. It's just about getting out and having a workable, quiet, cool, comfortable space, and it's totally worth it. Speaking of transportation... I came dangerously close to spending an insane amount of money on my bicycle. And I need to, I need to explain this, and this is point six. I need to explain this because, um, and I need someone to talk me off the ledge, and, which I already did, but it would be nice for someone who knows more than me to do that. So I have a, my, my primary bicycle, the only bicycle I really like to ride anymore, is my Salsa Fargo Titanium, right? I've had this bike for six or seven years. I've put thousands and thousands of miles on it. The current set of tires I have on it right now already have 3,000 miles on them. And that's probably the third or fourth set of tires I've had on this bike. I love it. It's a titanium frame, carbon fork, adventure drop bar, mountain bike kind of thing. Racks, cages, frame packs, etc. You've seen pictures. I've made films about it. I'll continue to make them. But the componentry that came with it, which is a SRAM setup... Was worn out. I'd had it for, like I said, six or seven years. I've never done anything to it. And my chain was jumping all around. My sprockets and cogs were worn. So I took it to the local bike shop and I said, look, I'm either going to replace everything and go Shimano GRX or I'm going to just go cheap and I'm just going to update like the drivetrain. So, like an idiot, I go cheap and I update the drivetrain. And it sucks. You know, it's up shifting on its own, down shifting. It's sloppy, and the guy said, "Look, your derailers worn out. Your shifters are getting worn out. There's a clicking sound in the in your rear your rear brake that we can't figure out. You know, these things are worn." And I'm like, "Ah, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm not that serious a rider. I'll just go cheap." And so I go cheap, and it sucks. And so now the riding experience is like this blows because I'm out and I'm I'm riding on I'm at seven thousand feet up to ten thousand. I'm in long climbs. I'm on gravel, and the thing's jumping around. And when you're The beauty of long-distance cycling or cycling at elevation is the suffering. And for those of you who don't ride, that might sound like a strange observation or strange admission. The suffering is what makes it so great because the suffering forces you into your mind. And inside your mind is where the great things happen. And so physically you're suffering and it triggers this deep dive into the mind and it's like meditation. And so, and it's addictive for some people like me and like my brother does long distance stuff. And I have a ton of friends that are long distance runners and it's hard to explain. And yeah, there's a dopamine thing and, you know, physically your body feels good and you're flooding your body with oxygen and doing all these other things, but it's really about the suffering. But the suffering only works when you don't have to think about anything else. And when your bike's jumping around and upshifting and downshifting and it's sloppy and you're in between gears and you have to upshift and then upshift one gear too many and then slight downshift to like balance it out, it sucks. And so now I'm like, I don't want to do this ever again. I don't want to buy components that are going to wear out. So in my head, in my little polluted, corrupted, stony little head, I decide I'm going to go roll off hub with a Gates carbon belt drive. Now, for those of you don't know, and I don't care if you don't know about bicycling and you don't care about bicycling, this is something cool. The Roll-Off is from Germany, which means it's great, right? I mean, it's engineered in Germany. It is an internal sealed hub for the rear wheel with 18 speeds. So it's a hub that's totally sealed, impervious to the weather. You change the oil like once every 5,000 Ks or 5,000 miles, and the oil changes like your car. It takes 10 minutes and no big deal. But it's sealed, and there are no cogs in the back. There's just one. And instead of using a chain, I was going to use a car- Gates carbon belt drive, which is made out of carbon. They, are three times, they last three times as long as a chain. They are silent. There's no maintenance, and they don't stretch. Everybody I've ever known who switched to a carbon belt said, I will never go back to a chain. So with a roll-off, that means you eliminate all the cogs in the back, And your gearing is inside this hub. And they have a super cool new system where I can use my existing SRAM shifters to shift the roll-off. So the bike with the drop bars and everything else remains the same, but I get this sealed hub in the back and I get a Gates carbon belt, which means no more chain and no more worn-out cogs. And these things last forever. There are people cycling or circling the earth on their bicycles that are long-term tour people that have almost 400,000 kilometers on their roll-off hub. And um, there's a great YouTube channel called Cycling About by this guy who's down and he's riding from Patagonia to Alaska right now. He's a, I think he's a former pro cyclist, but he's a very knowledgeable cyclist guy and makes films about his travels. And he rides a bike that has a roll-off and a gates. And if you see what this guy's doing on the bike, it's so far beyond anything I'll ever do that if it works for him, I'm kind of like, great. So there's a, a shop in Berkeley called Cycle Monkey, and they're the importer of roll-off hubs, and they know how to do this stuff. So I reach out to them and they're very kind and very cool. And they say, look, you know, you need this, 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 and this, and it's going to take this much time and you drop your bike. And I'm like, great, because I'm thinking about making a trip to NoCal. And so the problem was that my frame, which is a 2014, was the first year that was roll off compatible. And I was like, oh, cool. So I'll go roll off in Gates carbon. Now there's two problems with this number one is the cost. It's freaking expensive. To do this whole procedure is more than the cost of my bike. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute. Does this make any sense at all? And the second part that really deterred me, it wasn't the cost. The cost was a lot, but I thought, you know what? I work my ass off and the bike is super important to me and I'm going to ride this bike for the rest of my life. So this is worth doing, right? That's called a good expenditure, good ROI. The problem was too that the frame was not gates compatible so i have to do what's called adding a splitter which means a custom bike bike worker not worker what am i trying to say fabricator someone who can custom work on bikes has to cut my titanium frame and put in a little splitter so that the belt can fit on there now on the surface you might go that's out of you're out of your mind why would you cut a titanium frame this happens all the time they the people who do splitters I've never heard of a splitter failing. I've never heard of a project like that. But I was like, God, this is getting complicated and it's getting really expensive. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I know I would love it. I know, no, no, I would love it. But as of right now, I'm not going to do it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to strip off all the SRAM, all of it. I'm getting rid of my shifters, my brakes, my drivetrain, everything. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Shimano GRX and I'm going to go with a one by on the front instead of a 2 with a wide gear range on the back and simplify the entire system and just go with Shimano. I've had such good luck with Shimano over the years. Uh, My my Bianchi, for example, is 10 10 years old. No, it's 11 years old. I've never had it serviced. It's Dura-Ace. It's incredible. It works perfectly. It's never, never, ever, ever once given me any problems and I've never had to adjust it as compared to the sort of lower-end SRAM stuff on the, on the salsa, which has been a nightmare from day one. And so that is sort of my plan. Tell me if I'm crazy. Now, to add to this, and I, and I, and I can hear people leaving this podcast because this is getting pretty geeky about cycling, but I love cycling and I love bikes and technology. So I'm walking with my friend David Goldberg the other day. And if I haven't mentioned David Goldberg, he's going to be my next point because he wrote something that I think is pretty interesting. So David is a longtime friend here in town. And for those of you friends of this podcast, he's also an unbelievable guitar player who's added some soundtracks to some of the films that I've done over the years, including the one I'm going to re-release tomorrow with Fleming. Fleming Jensen and I did this film called Una Pura Verdad about New Mexico, and David David Goldberg did the soundtrack. And Goldberg is hilarious. He was also in an ashram in India for 10 years. He lived with Osho. Uh, so if you've seen the, the uh, documentary on Netflix, Wild, Wild Country, that's about the ashram. And so he not only lived in India with Osho, but was in Oregon as well. He was a uh, very interesting dude. He's had a really qu- quite incredible life. Uh, and so I, I go over to Goldberg's house a few times a week. Um, I use his internet. We go for walks, right? We walk around his neighborhood. And I'm riding the other day. And I get passed, I'm, I'm walking with Goldberg, I should say. I get passed by two people, a couple, on separate bikes. And they're riding a brand of bike called a Co-Motion. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Co-Motion is either in Colorado or Oregon. I want to say Oregon. And they're a custom bike builder. They build bikes by hand in, let's just let's just say it's Oregon. It could be Colorado, but I think it's Oregon. And they make a very specific style of bike. They're known for tandems and really cool tandems like adventure tandems, gravel tandems, handmade, absolutely insanely beautiful bikes. They're also known for coupled bikes, which means bikes that have couplers in the middle so that you can take the frame apart in half and then ship them or fly them wherever you're going. Now, these are expensive bikes. However, you get what you pay for because you look at these bikes and you go, Oh my God, this is the literally the nicest tandem bikes I've ever seen are Co Motion. Some of the best touring bikes I've ever seen are Co Motion. They make a bike, I think it's called a Pangea, actually, that is a coupled roll-off hub gates carbon drive adventure tour bike. So imagine my salsa built for touring with a roll-off and a gates carbon belt, and they are freaking gorgeous. Now my wife has been hucking me to China, by the way, that's a great expression from our Yiddish friends. She's been hucking me to China about getting a tandem bike for years. And I was like, Oh, tandem, no way, no way, no way, no way. And then I saw those commotion bikes and I was like, Oh, the commotion gravel tandem. Yeah. Commotion adventure tandem. Yeah, I'll take that. And so the tricky part is where the heck do you put a tandem? I think, I think for us, a tandem bike would work really well here in New Mexico. I would just leave it put together all the time, and then she and I would ride all the time, and then when we go in the van, we would take our individual bikes. So I'm walking with Goldberg the other day, and first whoosh, comes by me comes, the, comes a female on a co-motion, what I'll call gravel bike, with a roll-off hub and a Gates carbon belt. And it took me a second to register what it was. And I was like, oh my God, that's a commotion with a, with a roll off and a Gates carbon belt. And then shoop, comes the husband by or the boy, boyfriend or whoever he is. And he comes by and now I'm, I'm freaking I'm in COVID hell now. I'm, tr- I'm fumbling, trying to get my mask off because I'm trying to yell to them. Hey, can I ask you about your bike? And I'm fumbling. I've got a buff on and a mask and a, you know, a hyper alloy combat chassis over my head. And I'm like, blah, blah, I'm fumbling. And it looks like I'm having a seizure and by the time I get all my garb off, they're gone. And so I'm like, damn it. So I think those people live here in town and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to stalk them on that same hike and bike trail as often as I can. If anyone from Motion hears this and you know who these people are, let me know because I really wanna talk to them about the bikes. Because the only thing that I've seen that would steer me towards getting rid of my salsa or donating my salsa to someone else, or maybe I would even keep it and leave it here for visitors that would come to want a gravel ride with me. That's probably a good idea. I would sell the Bianchi and I would keep the Salsa as a backup for people who want to come and do rides with me. That could be really fun. That's probably what I would do. But co-motion bikes, I was like, ooh, that's scary. Because, you know, I could feel the credit card in my, in my ass just melting to my cheek because um, they're expensive. But again, like it's ROI. I use that bike almost every single day. It's a huge part of my life. I'm, my hope is that the bike becomes even more a part of my life. I'm scouting trips now all over southern New Mexico for the winter based on where I can cycle when it's you know 12 degrees in Santa Fe. If it's 35 or 40 down on the border, then where can I ride down there? So the bike to me is a big deal. I want to eventually do a long-distance tour. That ride from Prudhoe Bay to Patagonia to me has been on my radar for a decade. Um, I don't know if I'm physically capable but it would definitely be something I'm, I would be interested in. Okay, point number seven, eight. And I mentioned this a second ago, and I've got to move real quick. I'm going, to, I'm going to make some noise, and I'm going to move and go to my computer because i got to get you this website. Hang on. Okay. The site you want is davidgoldbergblog.com. And he wrote, David, again, is a friend, lived that very interesting life. Um, And he writes this blog, and he also does guitar films on YouTube, by the way. But he wrote this thing called A 21st Century Method of Identifying the Sociopathic Personality. And we had this, not psychopathic, sociopathic uh, personality. We had this conversation yesterday while we were eating. And we were talking about sociopaths. And Goldberg was one of the first people I ever heard break down sociopathic behavior for me compared to psychopathic and and unempathetic, and the differences between those. And a sociopath is someone who is physically incapable of feeling empathy. Someone who's unempathetic is just a, a jerk that just doesn't feel like, you know, they see a strategic advantage in not being empathetic, and they do that. But if they wanted to, they could feel empathy. A sociopath was born with the inability to feel empathy, and they have tells, like a poker player. They all have tells, and one of the tells is facial expressions or lack thereof. The first person from the administration that jumped out at me was Jared Kushner, and Kushner, I immediately thought to myself, man, that that is a classic example of a sociopath, someone who just cannot feel empathy. So when he's being asked about coronavirus deaths or whatever, and he's smirking, you realize, oh, man, this guy is not, you know, he's not put together like a lot of people. But Goldberg wrote this article, and it's actually really worth reading. It's well written. And he breaks down um, about half a dozen, maybe eight or ten people who are not sociopathic, and then eight or ten that potentially are, and based on their facial expressions found through Google image searches. And it's a very interesting thing. And if you haven't seen this or don't know much about the whole sociopathic situation or or syndrome, I guess you will, or I don't know what you would call someone that that characterizes or, or is characterized by those traits, but it's pretty fascinating. So that's it. Um, Okay. Let's see. Moving on. Uh, This is kind of out of right field, but I think it's definitely worth talking about. There is a a channel on YouTube called Street Beefs, and it has to be one of my all-time favorite things. Street Beefs, B-E-E-F-S. Beef as in, I got a beef with you, man, and we're going to throw down. So what it is, is basically backyard fighting, Right, And it happens all over the country, and it's way bigger than you think it is. And so don't don't judge me before I tell you this story, because it's simultaneously horrifying and hilarious. So I'm on YouTube, as I am, and I'm typically just re-watching my own films because they're so amazing. But I get distracted, and it says, you know, hey, here's what you should watch next. You know, the infamous dangerous and horrifying YouTube algorithm that's basically tracking every, every thought you have telling you what to watch next. And suddenly it says, you should watch this street beefs thing. And I'm like, huh, what's that? And it's a fight between someone named Detail, as in I'm going to detail your car, and another guy named Shinigami. Now, I would think with a name like Shinigami, you might have a Japanese fighter, right? But I was wrong. He's a Caucasian dude from like Tennessee or Kentucky or something like that. And detail, you know, they're going around, there's an actual ring, it's outdoors, it's dirt floor, and it's surrounded by hay bales. And that's your first indicator that you are in deep trouble. If you are ever, and I mean ever, involved in any event whatsoever, anywhere, and you are surrounded by hay bales, you're already in trouble. You're going to get hurt, you're going to get maimed, Something. someone else is going to get hurt, someone's going to get run over or shot. Just know that hay bales signify trauma uh, and probably a trip to the ER. So, these two guys um, are are gonna fight, right? And in normal fighting, let's say boxing, you have weight divisions: you have lightweight, bantamweight, paperweight, you know, featherweight, heavyweight, light heavyweight, cruiserweight, all these things. And MMA is the same: lightweight division, super popular right now, super hot. You have bantamweights, you have middleweight, you have light heavyweight, heavyweight, etc. And they're all very very tight. It's like two hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty eight pounds, and you have to fit in there. Well, street beefs doesn't bother with that. You can take a three hundred pound dude and put him in the ring with an 80-pound guy and who's, you know, six feet tall and 80 pounds and the other guy's four feet tall and 380 pounds and they're going to fight. They just don't care. They put them together. And a lot of times the street beefs is based on a legitimate beef in real life, which is an interesting twist. Um, One guy I saw said, hey, so-and-so that I'm going to fight, his girlfriend's a police informer and I went to jail because of her and I want to beat his ass. And I was like, oh, this is going to get 100% of my attention. So let's get back to detail in Shinigami. So they go, they do the interviews. You've got, the, you've got the, the, the referee, you've got the MC, and you've got a cameraman. And the cameraman goes to detail, and detail's like, you might not know me, but you're about to know me. I think he said something like that. And then Shinigami, they pan over to him, and he's a sizable Caucasian dude. But he's dressed kind of like in a gi with a headband. You know, like he studied Japanese arts of some sort. And now I'm like, and the hay bales are there. And now I'm like I'm starting to get the chills, right? Something horrible is going to happen. And so they start, and within approximately eight seconds, you realize the outcome is pretty much already chosen because Shinigami takes one of his enormous legs, the shin primarily, and slams it into into Detail's face. Who Detail has is bent over. Basically, it looks almost as if he's presenting his face to Shinigami's shin. And then impacts with the sound of like someone cutting down a redwood and like the redwood hitting the ground. And it's horrifying and detail goes down and is not moving. And maybe there's a little leg twitch. And I was like, this is the best YouTube channel I've ever seen in my life. And I will do everything in my power to promote it because, um, it's fantastic. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I could go on and talk about other fights, but I just want you to enjoy, have this pure enjoyment on your own. And I hope detail's okay, because it was kind of a violent ending to this baby, and um, you don't want to see anybody get hurt, but oof, it was brutal. My neck hurts just thinking about the replay in my head. Okay, I think we should do one more thing. We're at almost at an hour. We're 59.48. Let me see if I've got anything on this next channel. I've got stuff about, you know, militias. I've got stuff about environmental destructions. I've got something about Banksy's stunt that pulled the other day that uh, the courts are going to rule against him, and that is a serious blow to artists around the world. Uh, the alarming nature of watching bikepacking explode through the YouTube world. Um, bikepacking is suddenly popular on YouTube, and every Yahoo in the world is out bikepacking. That's not a good thing, actually, because the backcountry was not built for, for that many people. Uh, how about our Attorney General William Barr talking about sedition charges for protesters? That is a not that is not good foreshadowing for what's coming if Trump wins because they're going to basically jail people who are going to protest. That's coming. Instagram versus print. Uh, Joan Didion. There's a documentary on Netflix about Joan Didion that's definitely worth seeing. Uh, Kamala Harris. Let's. I'm just going to end with this. Well, no, I'm not. I'm going to mention this. and I'm going to end with something else. Kamala Harris dresses like a normal person. There is a little film I saw somewhere of her getting out of the, of of like the jet they're using to get her around to, to different events. And she dresses like a human being. You know, she's wearing normal clothing. At one point she's wearing Timberland boots and like a normal pair of fitting pants and a white top and an army jacket and she's going to the fires with Gavin Newsom in California. And I was like, "Oh my god, a politician that dresses like a normal human being." this is a point that gets lost. And my brother actually pointed this out to me. And my brother and I hardly ever, ever, ever talk about politics. Um, But he had mentioned that JFK Jr. was the first person that he thought he could relate to. If JFK Jr. had really gone into politics, my brother said, God, I finally felt like there was somebody that felt like me, where he was normal, he was athletic. He had a normal life. He would go to the park. He didn't have you know, special, you know, he did have special treatment because of who he is, but like he would at least made an attempt. He was a magazine publisher. And that notion of saying, hey, a politician is someone that I can relate to, that is so rare in American politics because most of the time it's uber wealthy white guys who live behind, lived in gated communities, who commit financial crime, who have special privileges, who were in the good old boys club, and you cannot relate to them at all. I don't relate to American high-level politicians. They live in a bubble. I'm, I'm living out in the in the actual real world. And Kamala Harris, I don't know about her, her personal life, and I know that she's a, a high-level politician and is on the ticket to be the VP of the, of the United States. That is a pretty serious job in the grand scheme of things. But how nice was it to just look and say, wow, this is someone that, um, you know, the stable genius goes out in his loafers and khakis and tells the, tells the forest service to sweep the forest, and you're just sitting there going, oh, God, shut up, like, go away. Kamala Harris goes out, you know, is taking pictures inside a burned-out car, talking to Gavin. And I was like, all right, there's a chance here. And maybe, just maybe, she's a vice president that will actually do something, because Pence hasn't done a damn thing. Vice presidents in history notoriously a job that just doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. And, um, you know, maybe, I don't know. I, I would assume she's going to do more than Pence, who just basically puppets Trump and, and is a scary dude. All right, let's move on to something fun. What do I end with here? The social dilemma armed white man. No, that's too bummery. Uh, Bikepacking, no. Oh, I know what I'll talk about. Another, um, oh, quick, quick point. I know, I told you this was all over the place. I'm just going to say this, F the NFL, F the NFL. Roger Goodell, this this guy is a rat, okay? He's been a rat for a long time, and he bowed down to Trump for the last four years when Trump was making disparaging remarks about players and very, very racially charged remarks about players, and Goodell just went right along with it, right? Because Goodell will do anything to put money in the owner's pockets. That's why he still has a job. But Goodell came out And literally in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protest when it was the storm was brewing and Goodell knew that his league was going to be in the middle of this storm with players kneeling. This idiot has the nerve to come out after all this time and say, gee, we should have listened to Colin Kaepernick. Maybe this isn't about the flag. Maybe this is about police brutality. And when I heard that, I literally said, you know what, a-hole? I will never watch another down of your league ever again. You completely lost me. Now I'd been angling towards this view for quite some time, but when he said that, that is inc- unconscionable that you would say that publicly, because it is so obviously phony. You're 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 phony and you're a fake because you're feeling the heat. And now the players are wearing Black Lives Matter on the back of their jerseys. This is a system-wide protest. Everyone that I know, even Republican uh, sort of right-leaning people that I know, every single one says, look, we need police reform. That's the truth. We need police reform. Not all police are bad. I don't want to get rid of the police departments. I'm not condemning all, all law enforcement people at all. But we need reform, right? That's the logical sort of situation: is to say we have a problem on our hands. Let's use our brains, let's use our our intelligence, and let's get beyond this. Let's reform and make it better, and turn this around and come out the other side at 100 miles an hour doing the right thing. And for Goodell to say this was just so insulting that I just wrote it off. Plus, my 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 beloved New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees came out and said some really stupid stuff. Now, luckily. His teammates corrected him and he had the respect of his teammates and they said, look, he's not a terrible dude. He just doesn't have the right perspective on this topic. We're going to, we're going to help him. We're going to educate him and we're going to tell him what this is really about. They did. Breeze came out and said, you know what? I made a mistake, right? I was, I was looking at this one way and I was looking at it through the wrong filter, but still I was like, man, after four years, we're still making this mistake. So I'm done with the NFL. I'm done. All right. Last thing I'm going to talk about, I swear. There is a documentary on, I think it's on Netflix, called Speed Cubers. Very interesting. It's about kids and people around the world who can solve a Rubik's Cube in less than seven seconds. And it, to watch it is pretty remarkable. Now, I remember when the Rubik's Cube came out. I couldn't solve the damn thing. I just wanted to smash it, right? I was like, this, this is for smart people, you know? <laughs> I can't eat it, and I want to I break this thing, right? But my, I had friends that could solve it. But nobody could solve it in seven seconds. I also did not know that there is a three, four, five, six, seven, eight-sided cubes, and there's competitions around the world that happen every year, every other year, where people get together, and it's it's like a subculture. Most of these are younger folks, and there are two people in particular that were dominant in the film, two young men. One, I believe, is Aussie or Brit, I'm not sure. I should know I watched it, but it's been a few weeks since I've seen the film. And the other is an Asian kid who lives in America who has autism. And they're buds. They're like really good friends. And my wife was like bawling at the end of this film. It's a very sweet film. And it's about this weird subculture. But watching them move, these cubes, it's so fast, you cannot see their hands moving. It's just a blur with these timers and crowds of people. And it's like, wow. And it's short. It's only, it's a short. It's what I would call maybe a little bit longer than a short, less than a feature. But I noticed something very interesting. The Speedcuber kids were all using PC laptops. And I was like, someone please explain. Because, you know, we live the myth here. in the, the, the society that I live in, the subculture of the creative world that I'm in, everybody's a Mac user for the most part. And everybody drinks the Kool-Aid. Macs are better, Macs are better. Mac, even though they're paying like $3,000 too much and the keyboards break and they overheat and they don't have any ports and everyone—I've heard every excuse in the book— oh, but they're better, they're better. And then I look, go to a friend's house who has a custom built PC tower that you can remove all the parts. It has like this clear sided, a clear wall. And you look in and he's like, oh, I'm just gonna add this other hard drive. And you're like, you can do that? And he's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna flip around the CPU here and do this. And I'm gonna take the, and you're like, wait a minute. Doesn't that void the warranty? Um, don't you have to go to the Genius Bar? And they're just like, you're an idiot. So I was baffled. All these Speedcuber kids were using PC laptops. And I'm like, I knew it. I knew it. The smart people are not using Mac. They're using this PC stuff, and I have to learn it. And if I wasn't going to spend $70,000 on, on a carbon fiber belt for my bicycle, maybe I would get a PC. Uh, good news, and the last thing I will mention is that apparently uh, I have been approved for a laptop upgrade, so I will get something that is made in this century, and uh, hopefully it will handle my film rendering a little better than my current laptop. Uh, because it's exciting when you do a film and then you look down and it says your eight minute film will, will finish in two hours and 12 minutes. And your computer is going, and the heat coming off of it feels like a tanning bed. So I'm hoping to remedy that. Uh, okay, that's it. I'm done. An hour and 10 minutes. Uh, if you've lasted this long, you are a hero. Give yourself a pat on the back and I don't know, do a vodka popper. I appreciate it. I will be back at some point. Uh, Again, like I mentioned, I'm pretty busy these days and I've got more on my plate that I can handle, but I wanted to at least make an effort to do this. I do like doing podcasts because they are simple in comparison to a film and there's so many great topics to talk about. If you take offense to something I said or you're in agreement with something I said, go ahead and write me in a little comment below and say, hey, man, you're totally off base. Mike Pence is electrifying. I partied with him at Chuck E. Cheese 12 years ago. Great. I wasn't there. I don't know. Maybe he has a secret party life. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me know, uh, and I will see you next time.